It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Coin Bureau podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. I never thought much about making money. It happened accidentally as a byproduct of Satoshi asking me to keep my node running so others could connect. Welcome everyone, wherever you are and whoever you are, to the Coin Bureau podcast. My name is Guy. And my name is, is Mad Mike Mooch. There he is. Nice to see you again, old chap. Yeah. Are you well? Very well. Good. How did you find last week's episode? Yeah, great. I thought it was it was fascinating, wasn't it? There's yeah. there's so much uh, to talk about, especially that spoke so much that I find so interesting, especially about Bitcoin's early history. There, I, there's definitely a movie going to be made about it. Yeah, yeah, with we, the rock, with the rock, <laughs> Vin Diesel. <laughs> okay, so we're back for part two of Bitcoin. Um, there's still so much to talk about. Yes. Yeah, so at the end of the last episode, uh, Bitcoin had just been released into the wild, if you like. And do you remember it hadn't been... It so hadn't it turned had off mu- their computer. Yeah. So Hal Finney, who Hal was the second person after Satoshi to start running the Bitcoin software, he ran it for a while. Um, but yeah, his, um, it was, it, his computer was getting so hot that he was getting annoyed by the noise of the fan. Mm. So he turned it off. 
Um, so, yeah, so we had that. So Bitcoin was released to, I mean, you can't even call it a lukewarm reception. It was barely a reception at all. Like a couple of people replied on the forum with, as we saw, sort of fairly valid points about about potential weak spots in Bitcoin. Um, and yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't particularly well received at all. It was it was fairly meh. It was a big meh. Yeah. Um, and we also didn't we we looked at some of the predecessors to it, things like DigiCash uh, and then some of these other attempts to basically build a digital money. And this was obviously being done by these people that we met called the cypherpunks. Okay, so and we talked a bit. We talked a bit about last time about Satoshi, Satoshi Nakamoto, the elusive creator of Bitcoin. Yeah, we talked about Satoshi a bit last time, and as I said, um, it's such a fascinating story that there's so much nuance, there's so many little channels and eddies to explore in that story that we're going to do a separate episode on that another time. Um, but one of the other guys that I did, that we did talk about, and I wanted to talk about a little bit more, was this guy Hal Finney. So, as we know, Hal's second person to and second person to run the Bitcoin software, as I said, and also I think the first person to respond positively to Bitcoin. Um, so, among these kind of sort of negative or meh replies uh, to Satoshi's original posts about it, Hal was one of the few who sort of went, "Oh no, okay, let's let's see." Yeah. Let's see. So, as I said, him and Satoshi collaborated on this for a bit and they kind of sent code back and forth to each other and they would basically iron it out. Um, so, Hal, is a re- Hal was a really big uh, player in the early days of Bitcoin. So, let's just talk a little bit about him for a start. So, he was born in California in 1956. Mm-hmm. He was obviously a really smart guy. He was a science fiction fan. He went to the California Institute of Technology, Caltech. I think they call it mm-hmm. Caltech. Uh, he took courses. I, apparently, he was taking he was taking kind of graduate courses when he was in his first year. You know, he's, he's that sort of clever. Yeah, yeah. Sort of almost you know cleverer than the cleverer than the professors sort yeah. of guy. Uh, and he graduated. He had a degree in engineering. But he was also a really kind of athletic guy. He loved uh, skiing and running, apparently. He was very outdoorsy. So he's not your, not your typical, typical computer geek. Yeah, he, he basically, he, he got out a lot, you know, okay. as well as spending a lot of time behind a computer. Yeah. Um, he did, yeah, he, he, he managed to, I think he had that sort of nice work-life, work-life balance. Nice balance, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the early part of his career was spent designing video games. Okay. Which is obviously, I, I mean, that has to be one of the coolest jobs, doesn't it? No. No? Bond. Bond. <laughs> Bond is the coolest job. Bond is the coolest job. Okay. Formula One racer. Okay. Yeah. All right. So Designing computer. You think that's the coolest job? Well, I, I, think, it's, I, I think it's a cool job. I, I don't think it's a cool job at all. No. Um, yeah. So um, whilst he was, whilst Hal Finney was was designing these uh, video games, he also began so he's to the do- jock video game designer. Yeah, he's the cool video. Game he's designer. the cool guy. He's the guy who made video <laughs> game designing cool. Yeah, exactly. Air guitar and skiing. Yeah, that that sounds Hal Finney. Yeah, that's it's a that, cool name as well. It is. A, it is a cool name, Hal Finney. Hal Finney. Yeah. Um, so whilst he was working, whilst Hal was working designing video games, he began to develop interests in cryptography and privacy, um, which obviously, as we saw, are kind of real cypherpunk touchstones, mm. if you like. Um, and this led him to volunteer to work on a project called PGP in his spare time. Now, PGP is short for Pretty Good Privacy. 
And this is uh, this was a messaging system that used public key cryptography, again, uh, that's central to Bitcoin, to enable users to basically send encrypted messages. So it was a, it was a secret, yeah, a, a very private messaging system, which obviously predates the, the, the systems that we use now. And I think a lot of the technology that was developed then is is kind of taken for granted. You know, we see it kind of built underpinning a lot of what works for WhatsApp and Telegram and mm. these are, and Signal, you know, these other sort of messaging services. Some some of that technology was developed back then. So um, the guy who invented, who came up with PGP was a guy called Phil Zimmerman, who's another sort of legend in the cypherpunk story, um, a computer scientist and a cryptographer. And he he developed him and him and Hal sort of developed worked on PGP for a while, and the U.S. authorities became so worried about it and other um, encryption technologies um, that they had them classified as weapons grade, which obviously um, pretty cool. Yeah, which A made them really cool, and B made them super illegal. Like it, it was oh, a, really it, yeah, it became illegal to export them. So. Um, Zimmerman, he, uh, Phil Zimmerman was 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 kind of he was um, he was pretty clever because he got around uh, the fact that he wasn't able to export um, the digital code of things like PGP. Um, he, he published it as a physical book um, <laughs> to to get around these uh, to get around these export restrictions, which is I think pretty clever. Um, Good read, so- was it? <laughs> Yeah, well, if you if you like that sort of thing, <laughs> I don't I don't think it made the bestseller list. No. Put it like that, um, and obviously, yeah, uh, Zimmerman kind of through this work, and he was also like an anti nuclear activist uh, as well. So he was he got the authorities pretty interested in him. So they you know they opened up investigations about him and all that sort of stuff, which were eventually dropped. Um, but Hal was for, uh, Zimmerman's first employee at PGP, um, but because. Uh, because the the authorities were not too happy about it and were looking into it, he had to Hal had to keep it, all this work that he did on it very very secret. So mm. he sort of rarely talked about it and stuff. Um, as we saw last time, Hal was a cypherpunk and he suggested uh, some improvements to this hash cash system that Adam Back came up with. Do you remember this was one yeah. of the first attempts um, after DigiCash to come up with uh, and you know come up with a, a, a digital cash. So that brings us to Bitcoin, if you like. So Hal was Hal had form in this regard. He'd he'd worked on privacy issues. He'd worked on privacy tech, and he'd also he'd also sort of dipped a toe in the water of 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 a private digital cash. So he was going to be naturally more receptive to Bitcoin as an idea. So yeah, he saw its potential, um, and he became after shortly after beginning working on it with Satoshi he became the first ever person to receive a bitcoin transaction Satoshi sent him one as a test but to basically ten, test the network he sent him 10 BTC Bitcoins. yeah which was worth precisely nothing then um and which would be worth at today's prices somewhere between grand. 400 and 500,000 dollars so uh, but we won't we won't dwell on that. Um, so yeah, so Hal is Hal is really important to, to especially to the really early days of Bitcoin um, because he firstly believed in it and secondly gave up a lot of time and effort to help Satoshi with it and to help iron out these flaws and basically develop it. And I think I think it's fair to say that um, if he hadn't done this work, you know, if he hadn't committed that sort of time, then Bitcoin might just never have got off the ground. Mm. Um, so he's really, really, he was really, really vital. An OG player. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and you might have you might have picked up on the fact that I referred to Hal Finney in the past tense. He sadly died in 2014. Um, and he he died of ALS, which is I've got this written down here because I can never remember how to pronounce it. Isn't it? Don't they call it something American? Yes. So American, a, it's like a Lou Gehrig's Lou Gehrig's disease. Yeah. 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 So it's um, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which is also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, which is also known as motor neuron disease. Mm. Um, it's what Stephen Hawking had. Stephen Hawking weirdly managed to live with it for a lot, lot longer. I think when you're diagnosed with it, um, I think you get about, you know, you get about five years max. So Stephen Hawking was was an exception. I mean, mm. he lived with it for decades. I yeah. Sadly, Hal Finney didn't quite survive as long as Stephen Hawking. Um, so, and yeah, it, there, he he began to he he after be- being involved with Bitcoin for a bit, he was then diagnosed with ALS, and so he kind of he he kind of moved away from Bitcoin. He um, because he went off to get treatment, and uh, yeah, so he sort of stepped back from the project. Um, but he did kind of return to it uh, once his illness was more advanced, and there are occasional sort of. Uh, comment forum comments forum posts and things like that. So he chimed in. He was he was uh, he was reading the messages. He was lurking rather than yeah being proactive. Yeah, because ALS is um is 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 a wasting disease of the muscles. Basically, your your muscles waste away and you gradually lose all of your bodily functions. I like I say it's 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 a horrible way to go. Um, but his brain, I think, was was perfectly was in perfect working order, mm. much like Stephen Hawking's, um, which is a bit of an understatement. Um, but yeah, so he had a, apparently a sort of kind of special setup at home where he was better able to control his keyboard. I think you know it was linked to his eye movements and things like that. So he was able to contribute to Bitcoin even when he was was very very ill. Um, but yeah, he sadly died in 2014. Uh, and an interesting fun fact, if you like, his body was cryogenically preserved. Um, so perhaps Hal Finney will have the, the, the last laugh on all of us. Um, and I mean, he mined a bit of Bitcoin. And because he because he understood the value of the network, because he understood the technology and, and saw what it was trying to do, uh, he did keep hold of some of those Bitcoins that he mined. He wasn't mining for very long, but obviously it was just him and Satoshi. So he managed to build up a little stack, uh, which I think he was quite careful about sort of putting away for his heirs because he, um, he had two sons, I think. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if he does if he does get unfrozen, he could be rolling in it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so yes, Hal stopped working on Bitcoin um, in in early two thousand and nine. So it was just a few months old, but he obviously had other things on his mind. So at this point, at this point, there were obviously still only a handful of other people working on the network. Um, but one guy who heard about it was a student from Finland. Finland. Finland, and his name was Marty Malmi. Marty Malmi. Marty Malmi. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And Marty, I think, is kind of one of Bitcoin's... Marty! Marty! Is one of Bitcoin's more unsung heroes, I think. Okay. Um, he, again, uh, contributed a heck of a lot, especially in the early days. And, yeah, with no sort of real thought of... Are these unsung heroes multimillionaires now, though? No. No? No. This is what's, this is what's really interesting for me, because I think if they were... 
you, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily undo all the work that they'd done, but if they were, you'd sort of they they would obviously have held on to their Bitcoin and you know and been kind of unwilling to sort of put it out into the world. And I think what's what's amazing about what these guys did is that they were much more focused a on developing the technology. So mm. it wasn't it wasn't about trying to accumulate as much as they could in in the hope that it might one day be be worth something. Mm. Um, and a lot of them, as we'll see, especially especially some of the later ones, were were sort of really big about putting it out into the world, about giving people Bitcoin, um, giving people BTC in order that they could they could give it give it a try for themselves. Yeah, um, sort of a try before you buy sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And one of take the guys, mine before you mine. <laughs> Um, yeah, one of the guys we'll talk about in a bit. Um, when you hear how he how he did it, uh, it's crazy. Okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think so. Marty. I, Marty. Yeah, I think Marty uh, deserves a lot of kudos. Um, he was an amateur coder. He wasn't in, in anything like the same league uh, as Hal or Satoshi. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was. He really clicked onto the ideas behind Bitcoin. You know, this this kind of libertarian ideal that it was money without borders, without centralized control, or you know, peer to peer. Um, he was he understood that right from the off so he was and he was also kind of more of an archetypal geek so he loved playing video games he spent most of his time writing all of them have been on the video game sort of tip whether it's designing or playing that's true so like as far as one of them skied and he was the cool one Yeah, I think probably. Uh, look, I'm spotting a pattern. I, I think probably Hal may get Hal may take the mantle of the coolest cypherpunk. <laughs> yeah, okay. Which is so, Marty, yeah. video game guy. Video games. Yeah, he spent a lot of time online writing code, um, but he got in touch with Satoshi and he offered to help if he could. I think it was sort of like, look, I, I'm not a great coder, but if there's anything I can do. Um, and Marty wrote a bit about Bitcoin as well to Satoshi and sort of online generally. And Satoshi saw this and saw what he'd written, and he realised that Marty had was had got the concept. It. Yeah, he realised that he understood. So, and this turned out to be quite good timing because Satoshi was um, he wanted to move away from just sort of working on the code and try and put a bit try and put a bit more emphasis Do the on the PR job. Exactly, exactly. Um, Long story short, uh, Marty began writing material for the Bitcoin website that was more accessible to those people who weren't kind of hardcore cypherpunks, who weren't coders. Uh, and again, this is a really important step to take, to move away from this idea of kind of selling the code and uh, and and all the technical aspects of it to going, hey, look, this is this what is it can do. Um, real world applications. Yeah. Okay, we've got some amazing computer code here. This is this is brilliantly built, brilliantly put together. Um, but you've got to you've got to explain it to people who either don't understand that or aren't interested or, or both, you know, as it were. So this is where this is where Marty kind of kind of kind of really came in. Um, and yeah, because I think they both realised him and Satoshi realised if it was just coders talking about code, then no one you know no one in the real world was going to pay much attention. So, um, yeah, so Marty began um, writing for the website, uh, making all this writing about Bitcoin more accessible. Uh, he worked, he kind of improved the website as well and just made it kind of generally better and less clunky and less codery and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and he also began running the software and occasionally mining coins. And uh, I think he estimates that he mined about 55,000 in total. <laughs> I know. 
I know. Um, and what I think is really impressive, he taught himself uh, C++, which is the programming language that Bitcoin is written in. Um, and, and, you know, you remember, like I said, he, he wasn't he wasn't a sort of natural coder to start off with. He was more kind of just interested in it. Uh, and I think this is amazingly impressive. Ta- taught himself the programming language um, and was eventually allowed by Satoshi to make alterations to the Bitcoin core software. Wow. Yeah. I think that's pretty amazing. Um, Satoshi obviously trusted him implicitly. So, yeah, so he became he became a really important, uh, important person in Bitcoin's story, especially as Hal began to Hal Finney began to step back a bit from it. Um, And also, I think perhaps most uh, interestingly of all, Marty also collaborated with Satoshi to design the Bitcoin logo. Uh, You know, so is that trademarked or is that just? Yeah, so. No, I think like because that would be that would be against the ethos. Yeah, I was just going to say. Yeah. And what I love about that is, yeah, Satoshi and um, Marty kind of corresponded about it for a while. And it's not ex- entirely clear who came up with the idea. But, you know, I mean, you can see Similar what yeah, the, dollar the B, sort of thing. Yeah, the yeah. B with the sort of two lines running through it very much based yeah. on the So 55,000, is that like two billion? That's a lot of money. Yeah. Should we do the... I've, I've done it and I just want to know if that's the right <laughs> Two point three billion. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, so, and that's at so forty two thousand. Yeah, so Bitcoin is yeah, Bitcoin is struggling a bit as we record this. It's well, it depends. When, not not well. if you're not if you've got fifty five thousand of them. <laughs> oh no! I, oh I, no! I could have got an extra billion. For so that. yeah, geez, yeah. So he could have heard. Yeah. Yeah, but we'll see what he did with it shortly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but I, I mean, I bought one pizza. <laughs> <laughs> What I what I love about them designing the logo is that it was obviously it must have been a little side project thing and and that they worked on, you know, just to sort of, oh, we should probably have a logo for this thing. And now, I mean, it must be one most of the most iconic logos. In, in yeah. The, yeah. One of the most recognizable symbols in the world. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty. It's, prob- it's not on par maybe with Nike or Adidas, but it's up there. Yeah. And I mean, maybe I, I did wonder, perhaps I perhaps because I'd probably I was, recognize it over the yen logo. Yeah. Yeah, which I don't know what it is. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> probably definitely. a why. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's. I mean, maybe I just spend too much time in. Oh I mean, yeah, I think I think we are in, a, day, in a bit of bubble, but um, yeah. But um, I I love the fact that yeah, these two guys just sort of working on it as a side project and inadvertently came up with one of the with what will continue to you know to grow and become one of the most iconic logos in the world i mean it's as far as the crypto logos go it's the most well-known the thief isn't a theorem that diamond thing yeah that's it's what, the one that it's sort of it's the ron seal uh, of uh of logos i mean which for american listeners is is an english product that says does exactly what it says on the tip yeah that was their tagline yeah, yeah. so it, it it kind of you get what it is yeah yeah, whereas you're right, Ethereum has two sort of pyramids um, joined end to end. Oh, I thought it was a diamond or something. Yeah, it kind of looks like a diamond from afar, but I think it's supposed to be two pyramids. pyramids and then, yeah. yeah, I mean, all, yeah, loads of, all the, all the cryptos now have some their logos. Dog. And some, <laughs> yeah, I mean, one's just the dog. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, it does. It, it's instantly recognizable and you know, you know, what, it's obviously money, what it's, what money based. Yeah. So yeah, just as, I, I mean, I think that's an amazing claim to fame uh, to have designed perhaps one of the most iconic uh, symbols mm. of of the twenty first century. 
and beyond. Um, and Marty has another big claim to fame. Um, he was one of the people to receive one of the last ever emails from Satoshi. And this was May 2011. Uh, and this was an email saying, I've moved on to other things and probably won't be around in the future. Mm. So, yeah, so this that was ghosted. So, yeah. <laughs> I've sent to some I've sent that email a few times. <laughs> More in a text, though. <laughs> Satoshi was just ghosting. It's like, hey, we should do some more. You know, that lo- working on the logo was really fun. Like, yeah, other things, babe. I'm moving on. <laughs> but before he disappeared, before Satoshi just melted away into the ether, he also transferred control of uh, Bitcoin.org, the website, to Marty. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So and he it's was now sells. <laughs> it's now worth a lot. It now sells T-shirts. And <laughs> yeah. So Marty had access to the Bitcoin core code and also, you know, the Bitcoin website. So he was, yeah, he was close to Satoshi, as close as you can be to someone who you never meet and have no idea who, who he really is. Um, and again, another person who contributed a heck of a lot to Bitcoin in its early days. He also helped set up the first Bitcoin forum. That was in sort of late 2009. And he also became the first person to receive U.S. dollars in return for Bitcoin. Okay. Now, this is another small but important milestone. So another forum user called New Liberty Standard was trying to set up the first Bitcoin exchange, i.e., you know, basically the first place you could actually buy Bitcoins mm. and, and, and get them rather than having to mine them. Uh, New Liberty Standard was trying to do this and sent Marty uh, $5.02 via PayPal Uh, in return for 5,050 BTC bitcoins um which was which was going to be used as kind of seed uh seed funding for this exchange so that's where that's where some of marty's bitcoins went for the other 50,000 yeah so the other 50,000 yeah um i mean that's these 5,000 were yeah that's around 250 million dollars in today's money and did he put that five dollars into an account that had compound interest he did not (laughs) So basically, he, um, Marty spent uh, Marty cashed out uh, a lot of his bitcoins um, and bought an apartment in. Uh, this was bef- uh, kind of pre twenty twelve, I think. Um, used some of the proceeds to buy uh, a flat in in Helsinki, um, but apparently not a particularly spectacular flat. So I mean, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. It's still he still did okay, um, but really for- he would have been a billionaire. Yeah. But the project might not have got off. Exactly. So. Yeah. So, yeah, you have to, yeah. I mean, look, he's got a flat. He did okay. I mean, it's a it's a start, isn't it? I'm sure he's probably okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I couldn't. I, I couldn't. Once you've got your first billion, do you need more? Well, this is the thing. I read a really interesting uh, thing the other night, actually. Um, it was in <laughs> the original quotes in Italian, which I don't speak. But um, it basically tra- translates to something like... Um, rich is uh, is basically a ratio between two people. And mm. what it means is that, yeah, how, how we measure rich is basically in regards to the people around us. But, yeah, it's really interesting, I think, you know, because, I mean, I always think, yeah, if someone's a billionaire, what motivates them? What, what is go- They've more money than they can realistically ever spend. So they don't need to... They don't need to work. I mean, they could just go off and devote themselves to a life of pleasure. Is that what Satoshi's done? Well, we um, quite possibly, but we we know that Satoshi. I mean, we know that Satoshi that mined that no around no a million touched. Bitcoin. 
Um, but yeah, there's a wallet. That, I think they're spread across several wallets, which, which are publicly viewable, and they haven't moved in years. And they've never moved, apparently. So yeah, we're, we're at this stage where, I mean, the way that you prove that you're Satoshi is that you, you know, all you need to do is just access one of these wallets and move a Bitcoin. And mm. trust me, the internet will explode. Um, that would be, and it's, people kind of debate whether this would be good or bad for Bitcoin, because as we know, Bitcoin has a fixed supply of 21 million. So a million of them yeah. automatically. Yeah. One 20th or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A significant percentage of them are supposedly out of circulation. And yeah, a lot of people, there's a lot of debate, I think, about what effect it would have, because obviously supply, and, you know, from a supply and demand perspective, if the supply suddenly increases, then um, that could lead to that could lead to a dip in price. And some people say it could really tank the price. And others, I think, are more sort of like, no, it just, you know, it just means they're, they're still there. They're still there. Yeah, it's just that now. But I mean, what would be more fascinating is is that people would know that Satoshi, because a lot of people, I think, believe that Satoshi's dead uh, or has disappeared with no intention of ever reappearing. So if they were to move, if Satoshi was to move any of those bitcoins, that would be that would be huge. Mm. But because uh, because as we've discussed before, because Bitcoin is traceable, uh, if he was to do so, he would be running an enormous risk. Um, What's the risk? Why is why why are people so? Well, I think I mean this is something that we should we'll, we'll discuss it more in our episode on Satoshi himself. But um, I think one of the one of the sort of accepted truths is that he was he was all about privacy. He he didn't want to be a big global celebrity. And, I'm, yeah. you know, that would never have been his reason for, for, for working on Bitcoin in the first place. But I'm sure that as he saw it getting bigger and bigger, he must have made a decision. It's like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be publicly identified. Because not only would, I mean, your life would just become such a hassle, wouldn't it? Because so many people would want a piece of you for whatever reason, you know, I, just to talk to you. Let's let's get two things clear here, yeah? Yeah. If I had a million Bitcoin, my life would not be a hassle. <laughs> if anyone tried to make my life a hassle, I would end them. <laughs> it's a shame it's a shame you're not Satoshi, isn't it? I mean we're we're assuming. I, I'm definitely not Satoshi. <laughs> Because I didn't know his second name. Well, was that a double bluff? Yeah. Um, <laughs> now now you've got us now you've got On us. On tenterhooks. Um yeah, I, I I guess therefore that we can conclude that Satoshi is not is Mad not, Mike Mooch. Is not Mad Mike Mooch, but is not someone who's yeah, who would quite happily just sort of fly around in gold plated helicopters going. But I, I think I think Don't you, can touch be, you can you can have your privacy with that much money. Possibly, yeah. I mean, there's there's an argument that you can buy pretty much anything you like with money. Um, but also, I mean, it's not just it's not just everyday people coming after you. It's not just every Bitcoiner on earth wanting to you know wanting to sit down, wanting stuff from you. Um, but the authorities might be interested as well. Mm. Um, and I think that plays <laughs> because they're not part. viable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they want they they'd want their tax tax revenue from that. It's like, yeah, fine, take it here. Mm. Excuse me there, Mr. Nakamoto. Um, half of that is ours. Fine. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Fine. Half, half of a heck of a lot is still yeah. a lot. And, and let's be honest, billionaires don't pay half. Yeah. Yeah, they generally get away with it. Um, 
So where were we? Let's uh, let's go back. Let's go back to Marty very quickly. Yeah. So as well as sort of helping kind of publicize Bitcoin, if you like, coming up with the logo, um, collaborating with Satoshi, making Bitcoin more accessible, he was also heavily involved with submitting material about Bitcoin for an article published in, on a site called Slashdot in July 2010. Now, this, I think, is another sort of small but important milestone in Bitcoin's history. Slashdot is basically a kind of tech website. Um, it bills itself as news for nerds. Okay, cool. So, yeah, it's um, it's not Heat Magazine. No, it's not. Uh, it, you know, it's it's, it's not, not the National Enquirer. It's certainly not. Um, but it's it's uh, it's a big it's a big deal in tech circles. So, a slash dot post appeared um, about Bitcoin, and this really helped to supercharge interest in the project, and it started attracting a load of new users. And obviously, Marty, as I say, was instrumental in in basically submitting some material for this, you know, talking to the slash dot people. Um, so, uh, yeah, this was a this was another big moment that he was part of. Um, and yeah, he basically did more PR focused work. Um, as we know from looking at blockchain technology uh, in an earlier episode, the more people mining and running nodes on Bitcoin, the safer and more secure it becomes. So this this was perhaps Marty's real contribution. And because he was able to get more people interested, he was able to strengthen the network. More people be began participating on it. It became it became more widely used. It became more decentralized, and thus it became stronger. And again, I think perhaps without that, if it, it remained something that only only the really geeky, only the people who really understood the the coding aspect of it. Uh, if it remains something that only they could access, then again, I think it might it could it could have failed. It could not have got off the ground. Mm. You know? um, so it's again a really really important contribution that he made. I've got a quote from him here. Obviously, as I said, he sold he sold a lot of his um, a lot of his stack and, and bought this fairly modest apartment and he said when questioned about it because obviously he's been asked about this uh, perhaps owing to Finnish culture idealistic mentality and lack of life experience I never thought much about making money it happened accidentally as a byproduct of Satoshi asking me to keep my node running so others could connect uh, yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't about the money. It was yeah. about the project. It Listen, was as long as he's got enough putrefied herring, I'm sure he's happy. <laughs> that's all they. That's, your insights into Finnish culture there are, are so valuable. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the work he did was vital to help Bitcoin get off the ground. And again, uh, another great quote from him as he uh, as he said, "With the early Bitcoiners, we set in motion something greater than personal gain." So, yeah, uh, people like Hal and Marty uh, selflessly contributed to Bitcoin in its early days. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so on that note, shall we take shall we take a quick break uh, quick and five. Come, quick five and then we'll come back and talk about a couple of other guys. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine 
And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. 
The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've just been talking about Hal Finney and Marty Malmy, these two guys who selflessly uh, contributed time and effort and uh, much else besides in order to make Bitcoin what it became, um, in, in order to help improve it, in order to help uh, get the word out about it. Uh, and as I say, yeah, their contributions are in some cases a little unsung, I think, but absolutely vital, especially in those early days. Yeah. So there are m plenty more people who've contributed tons to Bitcoin. And I should say at this point, you know, we're going to because of because we're constrained by time and because the Bitcoin story is so vast, it's ongoing, so rich. And, yeah. And ongoing. Um, there are a few people uh, that I just, you know, um, that m I may not mention uh, in this or in this or other episodes. So, uh, yeah, these guys that we're going to talk about aren't the only people to have contributed to Bitcoin, obviously. Um, but they are they are among the most important. But there are others. And uh, if I haven't mentioned their names, um, apologies. It's just in the name of uh, it's just in the name of keeping things keeping things succinct, yep. if you like. Okay, so two uh, two other people who've contributed a ton to Bitcoin in the past are uh, well, Laszlo and Gavin. Laszlo, that sounds familiar. Yeah, so we have met this guy Laszlo Hanieks before. Now, he is a computer programmer uh, who is based in Florida. And he's another one of these early guys who didn't hodl. Now, when I say we've talked about him before, we talked about him briefly. Oh, the graphics card. Exactly. Yeah. We talked about him in the episode. This is the pizza guy. This is Bitcoin pizza guy. Yeah. Yeah. So Laszlo Hanyeks, as we said, yeah, when we talked about when we talked about uh, blockchain, the technology that underpins Bitcoin and all cryptocurrency for that matter. We were talking about the mining process, weren't we? And how when it started out, when Bitcoin was in its very, very early days, you could mine it by uh, basically using your laptop. And it would mine off the laptop's central processing unit or CPU. But Laszlo clocked that if you use the graphics card, you could get a lot more processing power or a lot more mining done. Precisely. That was one of the technological leaps. Yeah. He became... Bitcoin flush. He did. And he did. then, uh, and then, and traded a lot for a pizza. That's me. <laughs> I couldn't have put it better myself. Yeah. 10,000 well Bitcoin. Yeah. Was it so 10,000? It was. Let me have a look. It was 10,000 BTC. Yeah. Jeez. Absolutely right. Yeah. So. To uh, a British dude. To a British dude. Yes. Well, we who, think. We think. So, well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Sorry. But, um, <laughs> well remembered, I'm though. I'm just so proud. <laughs> I was You've retained. This is wonderful. You're learning. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, in our episode on blockchain, obviously, we talked about the, the mining process. We won't go back into that again here. But, yeah, 
uh, Laszlo discovered that if you if he switched his computer's graphics card, his GPU um, graphics processing unit, uh, it was much better designed to do what Bitcoin mining is, which is essentially uh, com- uh, rolling a dice. Yeah, re- re- conducting the same very boring, very straightforward process over and over again, basically making lots of guesses at a very random number. So the GPU on the computer was much better suited to this. And Laszlo had this idea. And yeah, as you say, he kind of supercharged the Bitcoin mining process. So, I mean, a good analogy is if everyone else was mining with shovels, uh, suddenly Laszlo appears with uh, a pneumatic drill. Yeah, oh, yeah. Or with a digger. Yeah. You know, it just suddenly he's just able to you know, the whole thing. And this kind of starts what I referred to as a bit of an arms race mm. when we last talked about it in that people then, you know, people woke up to the fact that there was there were ways that you could configure your computer. And what if you added more computers and what if you had a better GPU and all this sort of stuff. So this is how we've ended up at this uh, situation today where if you want to become a uh, a serious Bitcoin miner, you need hundreds, thousands of computers, basically racks of them, all running, all obviously consuming vast amounts of power. Um, but yeah, that is that is basically the entry point now. And that starts with this with this guy, Laszlo Hanyaks. But this isn't Laszlo's only contribution to Bitcoin, because when he first came across it, he was another one who who understood the process, uh, understood what Bitcoin was about and saw the potential of it. So he started, he approached it with a kind of, if you like, a kind of hacker's mentality. So he looked at it, looked at the software and tried to find things that were wrong with it. Now, fortunately for, for Bitcoin and for us, he had a sort of white hat hacker approach. Have you heard this term before? White Black hat. hat White hat. White hat is yeah. the legit way of doing it. Yeah. So a white hat hacker basically does it for um, good reasons. Yeah. Yeah. To try and to try and find vulnerabilities in the code, to try and find weak points, and then I mean there are lots of people who make their living out there doing this. They'll they'll hack a company's systems and then come to them and go, look, this is what I did. This is the problem with your security or whatever, um, and this is how you fix it. And yeah. So there's the invoice. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> by the way, it'll cost you this much. But you know, it's a it's a it's a legit way of doing business because it 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 shows so it's it in, problem solves. Yeah, yeah. So that's what Laszlo approached Bitcoin as. He was trying to find ways, uh, trying to find vulnerabilities. And fortunately, yeah, he was he did it with the the right mentality. Um, so he was looking for basically ways of improving the protocol. Anyhow. He, as you say, he discovers this new way of mining, um, which obviously means that he starts mining more coins than anyone else. And I don't recall exactly how long he was ahead for, but he was able to build up a fairly large stack of Bitcoins by being the biggest miner on the block. Um, So because back then, and this is, uh, let me check the dates of this. So yeah, so this is around kind of 2010. So again, this is about maybe a year, kind of 18 months roughly into Bitcoin's, into Bitcoin's history. So it's still very, very young. So Laszlo obviously builds up a fairly impressive stack of Bitcoins. They're not worth anything. You know, they've only one, um, you know, they've barely been used to buy anything in the real world. So he decides one evening uh, that he would like, he's hungry. So he puts a message on, uh, on the Bitcoin forum asking basically if someone can sort him some pizzas and he will pay them uh, 10,000 uh, bitcoins in return. And what he said was, um, 
what I'm aiming for, this is the exact quote, what I'm aiming for is getting food delivered in exchange for bitcoins where I don't have to order it or prepare it myself. So I don't think he was too fussed. I don't, I don't think he was sort of you like, I want a Domino's. Or yeah, yeah. It was just like, find some pizzas for me so as I don't have to do anything and 10,000 BTC will be yours. So this is exactly what someone did. Um, he wasn't, uh, I think the only stipulation, he said sort of no. No pineapple. <laughs> I think it was no kind of fish or anything, no fish topping. Well, who, yeah, fine. I mean, okay. let's face it, you know, if people are mad enough to put a pineapple on a pizza, they're also mad enough to put fish on. Nothing too exotic. So no fish. So I'm, I'm entirely with Laszlo on that. Um, yeah, no weird, uh, I can see the quote here, no weird fish toppings or anything like that. And that's another one of my favorite Bitcoin quotes. No weird fish toppings or anything like that. Yeah. 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 And the person who obliged, so obviously Laszlo sent out this sent out this uh, plea. The person who obliged was a student called Jeremy Sturdivant, or Sturdivant, who called up the Papa John's uh, pizzeria near where Laszlo was based and ordered two pizzas for him, apparently worth around $40, uh, to be sent to him on May the 22nd, 2010. And this is the first example that we know about of bitcoins being used to pay for actual real world stuff. We've obviously had the first bitcoin transaction, we had the first uh, bitcoins for actual dollars, but this as far as we know is the first time that anyone used bitcoin to buy a a, a thing. 22nd of May is Bitcoin Pizza Day. It certainly is. Yeah, and that's celebrated that's celebrated every year. So obviously, yeah, give or take, that was worth five hundred million dollars. Makes them the most expensive pizzas in history by probably quite some way. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, as, as I said, he did actually buy more pizzas over the coming days because I think other forum users sort of got in touch. Oh, and was I see. Like, oh yeah, okay, I'll do this for you. So I think there's a. I think he. I think there's a quote from him somewhere. He was like, "Oh, my daughters were happy because they basically got to eat pizza for a month or something like that." So, yeah, so Laszlo Hanyeks, um, who should, I, I mean, I think really perhaps his real claim to fame should be what he should be the discovery of GPU mining. But yeah. really, his his big claim to fame is being Bitcoin pizza guy, the first first person ever to buy an actual thing I with Bitcoin. Now. Yeah, I know. It's really given me. <laughs> I really <laughs> do. I'm like, um, well, you've got to wait till May the 22nd. Mm. Yeah. Sorry about that. Nothing I can do. Um, so yeah, and again, this is another example of someone. Okay, so Laszlo got some pizzas out of it, um, but someone actually, actually trying to find real world use for bitcoins, um, and actually going to the effort. When I mean, let's face it, it probably would have been much easier and 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 quicker for him to have ordered a couple of pizzas himself and paid in dollars like like everyone else did. But um, yeah, it's an amazing moment. Him I, sort of trying to find something to do do with these bitcoins, and rather than hodling them, rather than sitting on them, releasing them out into the wild. And I think he's, I think he's rumored to have spent, you know, tens of thousands of, of bitcoin. You know, maybe up to about fifty fifty thousand or more bitcoin mm. on pizzas over this over this period of time back in twenty ten. Uh, as another quote from uh, oh Jeremy Sturdivant, the guy who uh, ordered the pizzas from him, he apparently spent his windfall on a road trip with his girlfriend. 
he says he does kind of wish he'd held on to them, but uh, kind of. Well, yeah, he's he's quite philosophical. I think they both are. Um, Jeremy said, uh, "Let me have a look." We want some lottery winner type people here, like not these people who are just so zen and happy with the world. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there are plenty more fun things if you like that you could that he could have spent those bitcoins on. Um, Jeremy says, "Buy a submarine." Why a submarine? Because like that's what Bitcoin is for. You buy submarines. <laughs> I'm not aware of anyone having used Bitcoin to buy a submarine yet. What if you sort think of about submarine? it, like Bitcoin, mm. it's kind of like you know if 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 you're paying in dollars, which is flashy and you know everyone sees it. Yeah. Bitcoin slightly more reserved. Mm -hmm. It's 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 traceable, but not quite so obvious. Yeah. Okay. It's a submarine. Um, yeah, uh, well, I suppose now if you'd hold on, held on to them, you could probably buy your own sort of Fleet. nuclear sub. <laughs> yes, that would be cool. Yeah, uh, I tried to look into this guy because I heard I, I heard that this guy Jeremy was British, mm. um, and I sort of tried to chase that up a bit because I wanted to I wanted to find him. Yeah, um, but uh, he was I think Liam Neeson's. Who you need. <laughs> yeah. I know you've still got those bitcoins. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was well. He was a student. I think he was supposed to be actually living in California. Okay, but so. I, yeah, I couldn't quite tell whether he was actually British or not, or whether you know whatever. But here's what he had to say about it, um, and I'm afraid this is going to annoy you okay. because he doesn't express regret about yeah, I, his. But that's yeah, I, I get it. He's, it's a front. He's crying on the inside. You know that meme where there's that crying thing, and then there's a smiley face mask on the front. Yeah, that's him. That's him. He says, Jeremy, while I can't claim any responsibility for Bitcoin's success, I'm proud to have played a part in something that went from an interesting concept project to a global phenomenon so quickly. Here's what Laszlo had to say. I don't regret it. I think it's great that I got to be part of the early history of Bitcoin in that way. Just a great little story about about Bitcoin in its early days. No one had a clue it would go to this much, mm. but these guys were just they were just playing around with it. They were just trying to use it. They just believed in it. And um, I suppose it's like playing a little game, and you've got loads of you know Sims money, and then you just you're spunking it on you know some new spin Sims road trip or Sim pizza, and then mm. that becomes oh this is now the currency and is worth billions. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think it. I think it must have been in. It must have been in those early That's days. It must have felt fair. like a bit of a plaything in a way. I mean, even if you believed in it, and even if you un fully understood what it was trying to achieve, there must have still been this sense. It's like, well, it's not. It's not real money. So sure, you can have ten thousand mm. Bitcoin. Yeah, cool. Well, you know, uh, yeah. because we can. No one can see the future. Like no. So let's talk about, there's one other person that I wanted to uh, get to today who also played a key role in the development of Bitcoin. And this guy is called Gavin Andreessen. Gavid, Gavin? Andreessen. Andreessen. Yeah. It, when you look at his name, it looks like Anderson spelled with a typo in the middle. But yeah, Gavin Andreessen. He was, surprise, surprise, you won't believe this. He was a computer programmer. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Crazy, right? Did he enjoy video games as well? <laughs> he was a base jumper who. Oh, was he? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, he was a professional football player from. No, Gavin Andreessen was a computer programmer who worked in Silicon Valley for a time, uh, which obviously geek heaven. Uh, he relocated to Massachusetts, and he was kind of, I think, looking looking around for something to do. I think his wife was teaching at MIT 
at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And Gavin was sort of just spending a lot of time on his computer, as you do. He discovered Bitcoin in May 2010. And again, like like some of the other guys we've talked about today, saw its potential straight away. He also began corresponding with Satoshi and contributing to the development of the protocol because obviously he had the programming skills necessary. And he was the third person after Satoshi and Marty to update Bitcoin's core code. So that's another another great claim to fame. Now, we talk about, I, I, told, I told you earlier, I, I mentioned earlier that, uh, that you'd be amazed at how one of these people spent their, spent the bitcoins that they accumulated. So Gavin Andreessen set up a website called the Bitcoin Faucet. And basically, you clicked on a capture and he'd, he'd to show you, that you weren't a robot. And he'd give you bitcoin. Yeah, you got five BTC. <laughs> Take a moment. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Five BTC. What's that? Fifty thousand dollars. It's one hundred and fifty thousand. It's nearly two hundred thousand. It's two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, isn't it? Jesus Christ. <laughs> so yeah, he um, he spent uh, fifty dollars to get ten thousand BTC, and he gave <laughs> gave them all away through this Bitcoin faucet, which is just incredible. It's another example, isn't it, of one of Bitcoin's early advocates just being selflessly dedicated to bitcoin uh because he gave away 19,700 bitcoin oh really as yeah. many as that oh i thought it was i thought it was fewer i thought it was around 10,000 but ni- wow 19,000 um yeah I, gavin was just just wanted to get the word out about bitcoin he just wanted people to be able to get their hands on some maybe you know the people who are intimidated by trying to mine it or um you know freebitcoins.appspot.com <clears throat> was mm. the original thing okay to this website Sorry, I'm derailing this. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. That's what you do most of the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. He just he was interested in just getting people to 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 try out Bitcoin. So to and and to be able to get their hands on it fairly easily. So he just yeah basically just gave it away. Here's a, a forum post that he wrote about the faucet. I want the Bitcoin project to succeed, and I think it's more likely to be a success if people can get a handful of coins to try it out. Putting his money where his mouth was. Um, and what's interesting, uh, particularly about Gavin, and, and this will be more relevant perhaps when we talk about Bitcoin in future episodes, is that he didn't approach it from any sort of political angle. Because a lot of the people that we've seen, a lot of the people that we've talked about, freedom. yeah, they very much, yeah, they held very strong political views on it. And this is going to become more and more of a thing as we as we delve further into Bitcoin and crypto. You know, it, it's inextricably uh, bound up with politics. And Gavin, I think, was not not a particularly political person. He did. Uh, he apparently does hold sort of libertarian views, but he saw the benefits of Bitcoin's decentralization from a technological perspective. So he was very much approaching it from the computer geek angle rather than the libertarian angle. And again, I think this is really important um, because, yeah, it, it, it stopped it becoming. I think I think if too many people had seen it as this kind of libertarian tool, then again, I think that might they might have struggled with adoption mm. because I think as soon as you as soon as you become too political one way or another, then that's fine for attracting people who hold those views. But it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's quite a, a, a put-off for people who just want to... Yeah. And most people politically are, you know, kind of neither one thing or another. You know, they're mostly kind of in the middle. Mm. Um, and, I mean, 
when you when you spend a lot of time in crypto, you you do come across a lot of libertarian views, and and it is a kind of if you like a big uh, one of the big guiding principles of crypto in a way this 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 libertarian outlook. But it's that's not to say that everyone in crypto is libertarian is is focused on this idea of of how the state should play a, a minimal role in people's lives how taxes are you know taxation is theft ta- taxation is theft and all that sort of stuff i don't think the majority of people hold those views and again if bitcoin had become a sort of libertarian standard bearer then i think it would again it would have struggled to to catch on because mm. a lot of people would have been put off by those views even though i don't think they're particularly uh, integral to it but it's kind of like yeah. I suppose it's kind of like I, I I know what you mean like if it's <clears throat> if it's just if something's too political it's it's a bit of a turn off yeah do you exactly. know what I mean whether any sort of extremism on either side of the political party or libertarianism which seems to be the the, the offshoot that's got quite a bit of momentum mm. anything that's too political is, I switch off I'm just like okay, yeah cool look I think that's I think that's fair enough. I think that's the case with a lot of people. If if you want politics, there are, there are plenty of places you can go. Mm. And Twitter. I think there's a yeah <clears throat> yeah you can go and immerse yourself in the, in in the political cesspool. cesspool on Twitter. Yeah. So I think yeah this is a really important uh, aspect to Gavin Andreessen, and it's kind of ironic because it, when Bitcoin became when Bitcoin got bigger and uh, became a lot more controversial. Uh, he kind of got himself sort of mixed up. He, he, his ideas about where Bitcoin should go and and how it should develop were very much at odds with a lot of other people's. And and it's it's sad, really. He's he's been kind of sidelined a bit in recent years. He's not, um, he's not the sort of big figure in Bitcoin that he once was. And, that, and that's that may be partly through that may be something that he's wanted to do. Yeah, um, because he sort of a Satoshi light. Yeah, I mean everything I've sort of read about him and, and looked about him, he, he's not he he doesn't have the sort of um, power hungry, you know, ostentatious style. You know, he was just interested in Bitcoin, um, and he was also happy to become a sort of face for the project. So when he went on the forum, he used his real name and his actual picture, which again I think is is important it, it, because he became a sort Validity of to it. Yeah, he became and it, and it showed that. It was more than just a, a sort of dark currency for the dark web or something like that. The here was someone who was entirely respectable, obviously very intelligent and passionate, but entirely respectable as well, who was willing to say, this is me. You know, this is what I believe in. This is my face. This is my name. Um, ask me any questions you've ha- you have. And he served as a kind of voice of reason on the Bitcoin forums when things got heated, as you can imagine they did. Um, so he served as Bitcoin's lead developer until 2014 after Satoshi disappeared from view. And he was also among the last people, as well as Marty, to get an email from Satoshi. Gavin's was apparently on the 26th of April 2011, which puts him a couple of weeks before uh, Marty got this email. Um, again, sort of, I've moved on to other things. Being go- again, another person ghosted by Satoshi. <laughs> latest babes. Yeah, exactly. So latest Gavin. Um, Gavin's last work on Bitcoin was in 2016. His access to the core code was revoked after he expressed the view that an Australian computer scientist called Craig Wright was Satoshi. Now Ooh. this is, yeah, this is controversial. This We're going to talk about this 
on the Satoshi on the Satoshi podcast and yeah we'll also Craig Wright will come up again I mean this guy is truly controversial um, and he is yeah there's still there's still a lot of stuff in in the crypto media about him um, Gavin unfortunately hitched himself to a project called Bitcoin Cash which was oh, yeah. a rival fork of Bitcoin now this all came about I as remember that yeah and it's and Bitcoin Cash is still going it's still not worth as much as it was no it's 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 struggling a bit um but we'll see this when we come to the block size wars. Um, this was the this was the offshoot of the block size wars, which was a pretty rough time in Bitcoin's history. But that's a few years in the future from where we are now. So Gavin Andreessen, another another really Gavin important, An- really Mr. selfless Anderson. figure. Sorry, Mr. Anderson. Mr. Andre- <laughs> Mr. Anderson, you have your access to the core code core has code. been revoked because you said she was Australian. <laughs> Satoshi is not Australian. Um, so we've seen how Bitcoin's early development was helped enormously by people who were completely selfless. I think, you know, there was no there's no suggestion that they were ever out for any sort of personal gain, but they were determined to help this project grow. And I think if all of these guys, they'd obviously be seriously rich if they'd held on to their Bitcoins. But then again, I, you know, I think I think you could argue that if they had, Bitcoin might not have made it. It's a yeah, it's a huge contribution that these four people. So we've got Hal, we've got Marty, we've got Laszlo and we've got Gavin, these guys who have all contributed to the project. So um, it does raise, though, a kind of a bit of an interesting paradox for me about Bitcoin, um, which is something I think we'll take a break in just a minute. But I I want to sort of I want to put this idea in people's heads to maybe talk about at, at a later date. But although Bitcoin was designed to be trustless, so the protocol is entirely trustless. It doesn't, you know, there's no one overseeing it. You don't have to rely. You don't have to trust anyone else. It does owe a lot of its early success to a few people quite who, trusting. yeah, or basically they, they weren't necessarily trusted, but they, because they were so selfless, that because they were so trustworthy, um, you know, the, they, they helped Bitcoin succeed. And I think that's, I think that's an interesting little snippet of the story. You know, it was designed to be trustless, but really, it, with hindsight, we had to, we really did have to trust that some people, like these guys, uh, were willing to were willing to devote time and effort and, I mean, let's face it, money, into making it work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I just want to quickly put everything that we've talked about in order. I know I've talked about lots of different events, lots of different sort of moments in Bitcoin's history up to this point. So once we come back, I'll just take us quickly through that before the end. Sound good? Yeah. Okay, see you in a minute. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way, is getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine, And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. 
I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. So I want to quickly uh, just put some of these events in order. And this will help us get a little bit of historical context because it can be quite difficult to keep track of all these the events as they happen. Yeah, yeah, when when exactly it happened. So we start in August 2008. Satoshi emails Adam back asking for his opinion on Bitcoin. This is the first time that Bitcoin, that anyone other than Satoshi has ever heard of Bitcoin. Then on the 31st of October 2008, the Bitcoin white paper appears. And then, as we said deafening silence almost nothing fast forward to the 3rd of january 2009 the genesis block is mined the first ever bitcoin block is mined and do you remember we talked about it in the last episode it contained that message the times um times, uh, yeah. Other, uh, yeah the times second newspaper. bailout for some bank for, or something. for banks yeah chancellor on brink of second bailout mm. for banks basically this message that that puts it in in context of the financial crash that we'd seen the year before 8th of January 2009, a few days later, the first version of the Bitcoin software is released. And then on the 12th of January 2009, we have that first ever Bitcoin transaction when Satoshi sends 10 Bitcoin, 10 BTC to Hal Finney. Yeah, to Hal Finney. Then uh, May 2009 is when Marty first gets in touch with Satoshi. August 2009, the Bitcoin forum is set up, the first ever Bitcoin forum. Then on the 12th of October 2009, Marty receives the first ever BTC to US dollar transaction. And that was, yeah, just over 5,000 bitcoins for $5.02. Wow. <laughs> Still better than giving it away. Still better than giving it away, yeah. And this was from New Liberty Standard. Uh, that, was their, that was the person's handle on the Bitcoin forum. We're going to hear from New Liberty Standard again mm, in the next that episode. That sounds like a libertarian. Mm, quite possibly. Quite possibly. May 2010, Gavin Andreessen discovers Bitcoin. May the 22nd, 2010, Bitcoin Pizza Day. Then uh, 11th of June 2010, Gavin launches the Bitcoin faucet and starts giving it all away. Then we have this really important day uh, in, uh, in July, the 11th of July 2010. This is when this Slashdot article is published. And this is a real sort of rocket fuel for, for Bitcoin. It's uh, certainly in tech circles. Then I just want to mark this date now, and we'll talk about it at length in the next episode. 18th of July, 2010, the Mt. Gox Exchange is launched. Okay. Okay. This is a big, big moment. I won't give anything away now. We'll discuss it in the next episode, but this is a huge moment for Bitcoin. 15th of August, 2010, uh, a vulnerability in the Bitcoin protocol is exploited and 184 million BTC are fraudulently created. Remember that the protocol limit is only 21 million. Uh, it doesn't succeed and the transaction is removed from the blockchain. Now, this is one of the few... Um, Breaches. Yeah, the few sort of vulnerabilities. This was a big moment in that, you know, suddenly the, the code looked vulnerable, but they were able to they were able to fix it. Fortunately, um, 12th of December 2010, the final post from Satoshi on the Bitcoin talk forum. Then another big date that we're going to discuss next time, February 2011, 
the Silk Road Marketplace is launched. Mm. And yeah, again, this is fascinating. We're going to discuss Mt. Gox and Silk Road in the same episode because they are, again, huge moments in Bitcoin's history. And yeah, that we're still feeling the effects of them today. 26th of April 2011, Satoshi's last email to Gavin, basically ghosting him. And then, uh, yeah, a few days later, May 2011, Satoshi's last email to Marty. And that was the last known sighting, if you like, of Satoshi Nakamoto. And just for a little bit of context, the Bitcoin price at around this time, May 2011, was, do you want to take a guess what it might have been? $10? Really? Yeah. Yeah. So that's where we are. And obviously that's a big that's a, that's big, a big price point. You know, from it being worth fractions of a cent to being worth a dollar is a huge jump a and obviously a very sim- yeah. yeah, very symbolic a very symbolic price point. So that's that's where we've got up to really May 2011. So it's it's still relatively recent history. Um but really early days of Bitcoin still. But as we're going to see in the next episode, things are really going to take off um, and not necessarily in a good way. So let's just quickly uh, round up what we've spoken about today. So Bitcoin is sometimes seen, I think, as just being the work of this one anonymous genius, you know, Satoshi. It's just Satoshi yeah. was, the, was the be all. And I mean, he was he, he was. Uh core element of it but Mm. it wouldn't have worked if it was just one man yeah i mean yeah i don't think i mean i wonder i mean i i know nothing about coding i i I can't i can't claim to be any sort of authority on on the kind of the the geeky aspect of it if you like Mm. but i mean for one person to do all this work i mean satoshi achieved an amazing thing anyway but to keep it going to uh, to not only iron out flaws in the code but also to kind of publicize it do little things like coming up with a logo and stuff i, I just I, I wonder whether anyone would be capable of doing just that amount of work whilst bear in mind earning at the time, no money from it, mm. and there are lots of um, there's lots of speculation that Satoshi might have been sort of fairly wealthy, uh, you know, wealthy enough to be able to commit a lot of time to this side project, but we we don't know that for sure. So, yeah, uh, so this is where this these other people came in, and we're 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 lucky that they were so selfless in in committing time and and everything else to it. But yeah, they made really significant contributions in in different ways, and I think they deserve yeah they deserve not maybe not equal credit with Satoshi, but they they certainly deserve. They deserve a, a chapter. In, yeah, in the, in the book of of Bitcoin. In the book of Bitcoin, absolutely. Yeah, um, and yeah, I think it's very much thanks to them. That, uh, that, Bitcoin, that Bitcoin made it. It survived and it began to thrive. And so next time, as I say, we will look at Bitcoin getting out into the world. We'll take a look at Mt. Gox and the Silk Road and... Yeah, things get things get crazy. Stuff. Yeah, we're going to meet some we're going to meet some more personalities in the next one, um, and I think it's safe to say <laughs> that they are a lot different from the guys. Cyberpunk, they're a different guy from the cyberpunk. Yeah, they're not exactly cyberpunk. They're kind of yeah. There's some abs- absolutely fascinating characters coming up in this next episode. So stay tuned. Sounds good. All right. See you then.
Thank you so much for listening to the Coin Bureau podcast. If you'd like to learn more about cryptocurrency, you can visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Coin Bureau. You can also go to coinbureau.com for loads more information about all things crypto. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Coin Bureau, all one word. And I'm also active on TikTok and Instagram as well. Uh, first of all, uh, it's not thank you for listening. You're welcome for great content. Yeah, like this is free. And they're learning about a fairly great topic in a non-boring way. If you'd like to visit me and hear more about me, go to Moochabout, M-O-O-C-H-A-B-O-U-T, or else. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coin Bureau Podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.